Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Friday, June 25th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. Look, it's been a very, very busy day. Still trying to get up, get caught up on things. I was in Atlanta for five days for the Juneteenth um, Festival, the ninth annual Juneteenth Festival. So uh, on today's show, we know we had some breaking news stories today. Uh, the Justice Department, led by Attorney General Merrick Garland, has announced that they are suing the uh, state of Georgia over the uh, SB 202 voter restriction bill. And they are alleging that it discriminates against African-American voters, okay, and targets African-American voters. So um, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland held a press conference today. He was flanked by uh, Assistant Attorney General Lisa McConaughey, as well as Kristen Clark, uh, Assistant Attorney General of the uh, Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So this is a huge development. And I did a post on Facebook today regarding this. And I said that um, this reminds me of in 1871 when President Ulysses S. Grant used the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 to uh, declare martial law in South Carolina. Okay, to declare martial law in South Carolina. Uh, I'm going to pull this up here on um, on the screen share so you can see this because this history is tied together. A lot of people don't know uh, this history. Uh, I posted, I said, uh, A.G. Merrick Garland suing Georgia over voting rights reminds me of President Ulysses S. Grant on October 17th, 1871. October, October, 7, October 17th, 1871, uh, declaring martial law in nine counties in South Carolina using the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 to crack down on terrorism, to crack down on terrorism by the Ku Klux Klan against African-Americans. This lawsuit that uh, was filed today by the Department of Justice, it's a 46 page uh, lawsuit. New York Times has a big article about this, Washington Post, NBC News as well. This lawsuit comes on the eighth anniversary a Shelby County versus Holder U.S. Supreme Court case of 2013 that gutted Section 5 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And as Attorney General Merrick Garland said today at the press conference, he said if Section 5 had not been gutted, most likely SB 202 would not have been able to the Georgia voter restriction bill and these other voter restriction bills in these state legislatures uh, dominated by Republicans, most likely these bills would not be able to uh, go into effect. So this is an example of how elections have consequences. This is an example of how elections have consequences. So we're going to talk about that on today's show. You're going to hear from Attorney General Merrick Garland from the press conference today. You'll also hear from uh, uh, Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General, uh, in the Department of, uh, in the Civil Rights Department of the Department of Justice. 
Then also, uh, we'll, we'll talk some about uh, October 17th, 1871, when President Ulysses S. Grant uh, declared martial law in South Carolina using the Ku Klux Klan Act of uh, 1871. Okay, we'll discuss uh, uh, some of that history also because this history is connected. And then we know that uh, Derek Chauvin was sentenced today in the killing of uh, George Floyd, took place May 25th, 2020, in the murder of George Floyd. We know uh, Derek Chauvin was sentenced today, sentenced to 22 and a half years. Now, the prosecution was asking for 30 years. Um, some people are saying, oh, this is a slap on the wrist. Uh, no, it's not a slap on the wrist. Uh, one is very hard to convict a uh, police officer. Two, uh, if you are the one that has to actually do 20 years, you know, it's not a slap on the wrist. You know, uh, that is something very hard to do. And uh, I have a clip from, unlike a lot of people talking, who are saying this is a slap on the wrist. I have a clip from um, Georgetown law professor, Paul Butler, who was one, an attorney, two, law school professor, three, former federal prosecutor. And he's saying this is not a slap on the wrist. So I would listen to professionals, then social media commentators who have no clue what they're talking about. So we'll deal with that also. All right. Um, you can still register for the online course that I teach. We have a new session starting up on Sunday. Uh, July 4th, 2021, Sunday, July 4th, 2021, uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do thousands of years of history and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. This is a 10 week online course that I teach. Um, and we deal with ancient Africa. We deal with ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, the Nile Valley region of Africa, Abyssinia, Ta-Nehisi, Nubia, Ghana, Shanghai, Mali, West Africa. We deal with the 800 year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. And we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We just posted a link here. You can register for the class. It starts up Sunday, July 4th, the 4th of July, or some people call it the 4th of July, Sunday, July 4th, 2021, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be eight. It's going to be 10, 10 weeks, 10 consecutive Sundays. Uh, so if you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, when you scroll down, you'll see the information for uh, our radio show. We're here six days a week. And you scroll down, you'll see the information for the online course. Click on register here. It takes you to the next page and click on enroll. Class is regularly $130. It's on sale $80. We do the class live. Uh, all the sessions are recorded, so you can go back and watch them over and over again. Even after the course is over with, you still have access to the course. You can still watch it. Um, for those that register now, we're also going to enroll you in our Saturday class. Class to meet Saturdays, uh, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have three more sessions of the Saturday class. So uh, as soon as you enroll, you'll be able to watch the content from the Saturday class, even going back to classes one through seven. And you'll be, be able to join us live uh, in class on Saturdays as well. And then Sunday, July 4th, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time the new uh, class starts up. So you can register for that. We just posted the link here or visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And as a bonus, when you register, you'll also get a digital download of my latest lecture that I did June 16th, 2021, dealing with the real history of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is Emancipation Day, not Independence Day. 
Uh, we never got our 40 acres in the mule. It's a two, two and a half hour. It was actually two minutes, 29, two, uh, two hours, 29 minutes uh, lecture that I did. So you get that in digital download format. Uh, for our uh, Saturday class, Saturday, uh, June 26th, we're going to uh, push that to the next day, June 27th. And uh, Sunday, June 27th, we'll do that Sunday, June 27th, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, because I have to attend a funeral on Saturday. OK. Uh, and, you know, we, we mourn the losing. Uh, we, we mourn the loss of uh, Queen Mother Ocean Dara, uh, Nefertiti L. Uh, so I have to uh, attend her funeral uh, on Saturday. OK, so we got uh, I was trying to get things organized and get all the details. I was in Atlanta for five days. But uh, our our, uh, sun, our our Saturday, June 26th class will do that Sunday, June 27th, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Those enrolled in the class, I'll send out an email as well. All right. Now, on the African History, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. Uh, we do current events in history, politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Uh, sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, to sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting six days a week, uh, pay some of the bills, et cetera. Okay. And uh, when you do dollar sign the AHN show, SHOW, it'll say Michael and show my picture there um, as well. Okay. All right. So I want to jump into this content uh, topics for today's show. Call the numbers 313 778 7600. It's a call in number 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a quick question or comment. OK, we'll go to the phone lines in just a minute here. Uh, so stand by. I want to go to um, we have Ed. Welcome aboard. Ed is our board operator on Friday nights. Um, we're going to go to uh, just a second. We're going to go to clip one. This is Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland. Now, the Justice Department sued Georgia on Friday uh, June 25th over a sweeping uh, voting law passed by the states uh, by the state of Georgia's Republican led state legislature. The first significant move by the Biden administration to challenge state level ballot restrictions enacted during the 2020 uh, election. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland said, quote, the rights of all eligible citizens to vote are the central pillars of our democracy, end quote. He went on to say they are the rights from which all other rights ultimately flow. Now, the complaint accuses the Georgia law of effectively 
effectively discriminating against black voters and seeks to show that state lawmakers intended to violate the rights of black voters, African-American voters. Let's go to this clip, Ed. Two weeks ago, I spoke about our country's history of expanding the right to vote. I noted that our progress on protecting voting rights, especially for black Americans and people of color, has never been steady. Moments of voting rights expansion have been, often been met with counter efforts to curb the franchise. Among other things, I express concern about the dramatic rise in state legislative actions that will make it harder for millions of citizens to cast a vote that counts. I explained that the Justice Department is rededicating its resources to enforcing federal law and to protecting the franchise for all eligible voters. And I promised that we are scrutinizing new laws that seek to curb voter access and that where we see violations of federal law, we will act. In keeping that promise, today the Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Several studies show that Georgia experienced record voter turnout and participation rates in the 2020 election cycle. Approximately two-thirds of eligible voters in the state cast a ballot in the November election, just over the national average. This is cause for celebration. But then in March of 2021, Georgia's legislature passed SB 202. Many of that law's provisions make it harder for people to vote. All right, pause it right there, the Ed. Pause it right there. Pa pause it right there. Okay, pause it right there. Just back it up about 20, 30 seconds or so. We'll pick this up on the other side of the break. This is an example of how elections have consequences. Uh, 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 Attorney General William Barr, uh, uh, Department of Justice, or uh, definitely Jeff Sessions, Department of Justice, would not have sued former Confederate state Georgia over voting rights for African-Americans. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the Future Radio, and Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. 910, The Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, Superstation, The Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Friday, June 25th, 2021, and we are live. Right before the break, um, we were talking about the lawsuit filed today by the Department of Justice, Attorney General Merrick Garland, 
uh, held a press conference today announcing the Department of Justice is suing Georgia over SB 202, the voter restriction bill. Uh, as a result of the 2020 presidential election, the Justice Department sued Georgia on Friday over a sweeping voting law passed by the state's Republican led uh, state legislature. The first significant move of the Biden administration to challenge state level ballot restrictions enacted since the 2020 uh, election. OK, we're going to go back to this uh, clip here from the press conference today. Approximately two-thirds of eligible voters in the state cast a ballot in the November election, just over the national average. This is cause for celebration. But then in March of 2021, Georgia's legislature passed SB 202. Many of that law's provisions make it harder for people to vote. The complaint alleges that the state enacted those restrictions with the purpose of denying or abridging the right to vote on account of race or color. In a few moments, Assistant Attorney General Clark will talk in more detail about this case, United States versus Georgia. I want to thank the staff of the Civil Rights Division's voting section for their hard work on this matter and for their everyday efforts to protect Americans' voting rights. The critical nature of their work is the reason we are doubling the section's enforcement staff. This lawsuit is the first of many steps we are taking to ensure that all eligible voters can cast a vote, that all lawful votes are counted, and that every voter has access to accurate information. Okay, so so that was uh, just stop the clip. So, okay, so that was an excerpt of the press conference uh, today. Um, check out the article here from. The I read the one from New York Times, read the one from Washington Post, read the one from NBC News. OK, um, check out this one here from uh, New York Times. Justice Department sues Georgia over voting restriction law. OK, uh, we're going to go to uh, in just a second here. Um, we're going to go to clip two uh, Ed, in just a second. So cue that up. Uh, the lawsuit came after Republicans blocked ambitious federal legislation this week to protect voting rights. Now, keep in mind, this lawsuit is filed. Today is the eighth anniversary of Shelby County versus Holder, a U.S. Supreme Court case that gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That was 2013. And that came uh, as a result, partly as a result uh, of the 2012 presidential election where President Barack Obama was reelected. And African-Americans, you got to understand this history because I listen to all these simple Simon ass people on social media, putting out videos, have no clue what they're talking about. 2012, African-Americans voted. Uh, it, it, something very, very important happened in 2012. One, President Barack Obama was reelected, re-elected, so let's say second term. But two, the turnout of African-Americans reached a record 66.6%. 66.6% of African-Americans registered to vote voted in the 2012 presidential election. This scared white people to death, white Republicans. This scared them to death. The percentage of African-Americans registered to vote was uh, the percentage of African-Americans who actually voted 
was higher than the percentage of white people registered to vote who actually voted. There's an article from uh, history.com that uh, deals with this also. And it's um, uh, the, the, there's one from history.com. Uh, and there's also one from, I think is smithsonianmag.com dealing with does an amendment give you the right to vote. But when you, when you study Shelby County versus Holder, Shelby County versus Holder was a backlash to the um, 2012 presidential election and the uh, results. Okay. Now you have some people, cause I was watching Roland Martin unfiltered today and Roland was in uh, Chicago. So he had a Chicago based panel. So he didn't have the regular, regular panel. So um, I wasn't on uh, uh, Kelly Bethia, um, Jasmine, we, we weren't on the day. So we should be back next Friday's panelists. I'm usually a panelist on Roland Martin unfiltered each Friday, but Roland quoted, um, uh, what's his name from, um, does economics. Um, he wrote the book, how, uh, poor people can save poverty. Okay. John, uh, let me see. Got his name. Uh, how poor people can save capitalism, I should say. Um, I, I'll think of it in just a second. But he, he talks to John Hope Bryant, John Hope Bryant. He quoted John Hope Bryant saying that uh, John Hope Bryant has a saying, um, people in neighborhoods that have credit scores of 700 or more don't have riots. Uh, they don't have riots in the street. They have riots at the ballot box. They have riots at the ballot box. See, this is what people don't understand. When this, they have riots at the ballot box and they have riots in court. You have to understand history. Yes, historically there were um, the Red Summer 1919. Yes, historically there were, there was domestic terrorism, things like that. That happens in, that happens largely to a lesser extent physically. Today, we do see it at state capitals, like in the state of Michigan, when you have militia groups and things like that, incited by Trump, incited by the GOP, incited, you know, uh, incited by all these right wing conspiracy theories, and, and they show up with their guns. We saw the January 6th insurrection. Okay. But things like that, are largely, they, they don't happen every day. Those, those, those are rare. What is common is white people rioting at the ballot box. What's common is white people rioting in the state legislatures targeting African-Americans with political violence through the laws. That's largely how they riot. So you got to understand what it is that you're looking at. See, you have to understand what it is that you're looking at. I knew this was going to happen because all you got to do is study history. The, 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 the 1877, the Compromise of 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes becoming president, uh, the Republican candidate for, pre uh, for president, Republicans 
agree with the Democrats to remove the Union troops out of the South that were largely protecting the the civil rights and and and, and the new um, rights of former slaves. During Reconstruction, African Americans elected about two thousand elected officials, state elected officials, U.S. Congress, U.S. Senate. You had two in the Senate. Hiram Rose Rebels was sworn in in 1870 in the U.S. Senate. African-American man from Mississippi. Mississippi has never had a black U.S. senator since the 1870s. Okay, the Hayes-Tilden Compromise. Yeah, this is called, also known as the, the um, uh, Compromise of 1877. So you have to understand how white people riot so you know what it is that you're looking at. That's what's taking place in the state legislatures all across the country. The Republican-dominated state legislatures, and even legis legislatures where Republicans are in the majority, they're rioting right now. So you have to know what it is that you're looking at. What took place right here with Attorney General Merrick Garland filing this lawsuit, this is similar to 1871. When, when, when President Ulysses S. Grant declares martial law in South Carolina and nine counties in South Carolina to crack down on domestic terrorism by the Ku Klux Klan against African-Americans. But if you understand history, you don't see how all this is connected. And the, and, and the Ku Klux Klan were terrorizing African-Americans. One of the reasons why was because we were voting, electing African-Americans into political office who are then writing laws and passing laws that then impact their former slave masters. And you think elections don't have consequences? Why, why the Republican, why, why are Republicans writing laws, almost 381, almost 400 laws, about 381 laws based upon analysis from the Brennan Center for Justice and 48 state legislatures. That's a lot of work. So I, I want to go to, uh, well, let's go back to this article here. This is from um, New York Times. And let's go back to this just a second, then we'll go to uh, uh, clip two, then we'll go to the phone lines. So the Justice Department sued Georgia on Friday over a sweeping voting law passed by the state's Republican-led legislature. Uh, the complaint accuses the Georgia law, SB 202, signed by Governor Brian Kemp, who stole an election from a black woman named Stacey Abrams. Imagine this. So you got to understand the history of Georgia. OK, this is only one hour show. And I, don't have, I don't have time to get deep into it. And I was just in Georgia. I was in Atlanta. And a lot of and unfortunately, a lot of African-Americans in, in Atlanta don't understand the history. Of Georgia. But the complaint, because I, talk, I talked to some of them and I talked to a few, few, um, I talked to this one older brother. He's probably in his 60s. He understood the history because he was telling me this brother was telling me that originally the state capital of Georgia was in Atlanta. It was originally um, a city. It was a rural city in Georgia. But what happened was. um you know, so the state capital is where the state legislature is. Okay, well, during this period of time, back during Reconstruction, you had African Americans, African American men in the state legislature. It was dangerous for them to go into this rural white area 
So he said part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason why the state capital was moved from where it was I got I, I don't remember the name of the city. He told me, but I don't remember the name. One of the reasons why I was moved from this rural white area to Atlanta was because Atlanta was safer for these African-American legislatures, state legislatures to go to than this rural white area. Because because the Klan was killing, they, they were attacking and killing, beating up, killing in some cases, African-Americans who were elected officials. And this is one of the reasons why the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 was passed. So if we go back and look at this uh, piece here, the complaint accuses the Georgia law of effectively discriminating against black voters and seeks to show that the state of Georgia that has the largest Confederate monument anywhere in the uh, United States is called Stone Mountain in Georgia. I've been to Stone Mountain. Okay, you have to understand the history of Georgia. The complaint accuses the Georgia law of effectively discriminating against black voters and seeks to show that state lawmakers intended to violate their rights. They did it on purpose. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't did I it wasn't Steve Urkel. Did I do that? It wasn't Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. No, they did it on purpose. It says that several of the law's provisions were quote quote were passed with a discriminatory purpose end quote said Kristen Clark the head of the department's civil rights division she's assistant uh, attorney general of the civil rights division African-American woman Kristen Clark brilliant brilliant attorney those she the, 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 the white Republicans in the Senate did not vote for this system they antagonized her during the confirmation hearing there was only one Republican that voted for Kristen Clark to confirm her to this position in the Department of Justice, and that was Susan Collins. That's the only Republican that voted for this sister. Now, Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, black Republican out of South Carolina, who is the Isaiah T. Montgomery of the Republican Party today. Who is Isaiah T. Montgomery, you may ask? Isaiah T. Montgomery was the only African-American delegate at the 1890 Mississippi State Convention where they voted on the Mississippi State Constitution. And at the Mississippi State Convention of 1890, they, uh, it was presided over by a white county judge named Solomon Saladin Calhoun. And Solomon Saladin Calhoun said, that, uh, he said the purpose of this convention he said, we are here to exclude the Negro. He said, we are here to exclude the Negro. Okay, we talked about this before. So, and I'm, I'm looking for the article here from uh, the uh, Washington Post. There's a big article called the, the Mississippi Plan uh, to Target Black Voters. Okay. See, only people think that uh, elections don't have consequences and voting don't matter are people that don't understand history. Because I can go through history and I can show you where we were targeted and killed to keep us from voting. But you have to vote strategically. It's not about a D or an R. It's about policies. Okay, you have to vote strategically. Um, so the uh, Mississippi plan. So, so what he said was, he said, we are here to exclude the Negro. He made it plain. And at the Mississippi State Convention, 
1898, uh, they they voted on and made legal in Mississippi poll taxes and literacy tests. Okay. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to find this article here from Washington Post. Yeah, they said uh, we are here to exclude the Negro. Well, um, the uh, Isaiah T. Montgomery voted for the Mississippi, Mississippi State Constitution that worked in opposition of his own people. That is Senator Tim Scott. And he did not vote to confirm Christian Clark to the Department of Justice. He is the Isaiah T. Montgomery of today. This article here from um, the Washington Post. Read this article. All this ties into history. This is what I, when I did my two presentations, in Atlanta at the uh, ninth annual uh, Atlanta Juneteenth Parade and Music Festival. This is something that I talked about. People down in Atlanta, they, they ain't know anything about this. The Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890. Quote, we are here to exclude the Negro. Show me the difference between the Mississippi plan of 1890 and the uh, SB 202, the Georgia plan of 2021. I'll tell you the difference. The difference is in 1890, they told you why they did it. Today, they're trying to act like we're stupid. In 1890, this is what he said. And then we're going to go to clip two just a second. The convention president, Solomon Saladin Calhoun, a white county judge, put the voting issue bluntly. Now, he's the one that presided over the convention. He said, let's tell the truth. He said, let's make it plain. Ain't no need to beat around the bush. Let's tell them what time it is. He said, quote, let's tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. Now, you got uh, Mitch McConnell running around saying these these laws don't discriminate against uh, 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 people of color and all this stuff. He's lying. You got Governor Brian Kemp. Oh, this makes it easier to vote. He's lying. The difference between 1890 and 2021 is in 1890, they told you what time it was. They told you what they're doing. I, I want to go to this next clip here. This is from a press conference today. This is courtesy Forbes.com. You're going to hear Attorney General, Attorney General Mary Garland, but you're also going to hear Kristen Clark, who no Republicans voted for to confirm to the Department of Justice, including the quote unquote brother, Tim Scott. He didn't vote for the sister either. Let's go to clip two, uh, Ed. Clip two, we're going to do uh, A.G. Garland announces Justice Department is soon. We are using every method at our disposal in our enforcement efforts. But that is not enough. We urge Congress to act to provide the department with important authorities it needs to protect the voting rights of every American. Eight years ago today, the Supreme Court issued the decision in Shelby County versus Holder. Prior to that decision, the Justice Department had an invaluable tool it could use to protect voters from discrimination, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Under that section, any change with respect to voting in a covered jurisdiction could not be enforced unless the jurisdiction first proved to the Justice Department or to the United States District Court for the District of Columbia 
that the proposed change did not deny or abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. Using that tool, the department promoted, prevented over 175 proposed election laws across Georgia from being implemented because they failed the statutory test. If Georgia had still been covered by Section 5, it is likely that SB 202 would never have taken effect. We urge Congress to restore this invaluable tool. I will now turn the podium over to Kristen Clark, who will tell you more about our filing in the United States versus Georgia. Thank you, Attorney General Garland. Two weeks ago, you made clear that the department will spare no effort to protect voting rights in this country. As you and I have discussed on many occasions, the Civil Rights Division stands on the front lines of this work. While it is the honor of a lifetime to lead the division charged with upholding the nation's civil rights laws, it is also a great responsibility. Today, that responsibility requires that I announce the division has found it necessary to file suit against the state of Georgia. The Civil Rights Division did not arrive at this decision lightly. It's our job to follow the facts and the law. And in this case, our careful assessment of the facts and the law demonstrates that Georgia's recent voting rights law violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I want to thank the voting section for their tremendous efforts on this complaint and everything they, that they do. And I want to express my appreciation to the acting U.S. attorney and staff of the Northern District of Georgia for their partnership and support. Our complaint today alleges that several provisions of SB 202 were passed with a discriminatory purpose in violation of the Voting Rights Act. The Georgia legislature passed SB 202 through a rushed process that departed from normal practice and procedure. The version of the bill that passed the state Senate on March 8th was three pages long. Days later, the bill ballooned into over 90 pages in the House. The House held less than two hours of floor debate on the newly inflated SB 202 before Governor Kemp signed it into law the same day. These legislative actions occurred at a time when the black population in Georgia continues to steadily increase. And after a, a historic election that saw record voter turnout across the state, particularly for absentee voting, which black voters are now more likely to use than white voters. Our complaint challenges several provisions of SB 202 on the grounds that they were adopted with the intent to deny or abridge black citizens equal access to the political process. The provisions we are challenging reduce access to absentee voting at each step of the process, pushing more black voters to in-person voting, where they will be more likely than white voters to confront long lines. SB 202 then uh, imposes additional obstacles to casting an in-person ballot. Like all of the provisions in SB 202, the changes to absentee voting were not made in a vacuum. 
these changes come immediately after successful absentee voting in the 2020 election cycle, especially among black voters. SB 202 seeks to halt and reverse this progress. First, the law prohibits election officials from distributing unsolicited applications for absentee ballots as they did during 2020. The law irrationally shortens both the period during which voters can request absentee ballots and the period during which election officials can mail them out to voters. In the 2020 election cycle, a voter in Georgia could request an absentee ballot up to 180 days before an election and up until the Friday before Election Day. Under SB 202, the state moved the deadline for requesting an absentee ballot by a week, a critical period, a critical time period close to Election Day, where data shows that black voters are more likely than white voters to request an absentee ballot. SB 202 imposes substantial fines on third-party organizations, churches, and advocacy groups that send follow-up absentee ballot applications and requires new and unnecessarily stringent identification requirements to obtain an absentee ballot. We are also challenging a provision of SB 202 that places restrictions on drop boxes and would limit access and ease of voter participation. In the 2020 elections and the 2021 runoff election, the Georgia State Election Board allowed voters to drop off absentee ballots in drop boxes. This method of voting was widely deployed in the metro Atlanta area, where the largest black voting age population in Georgia resides. During the 2020 election cycle, the four most populous counties in the metro Atlanta area provided over 100 drop box locations for voters. Under the bill, that number is expected to drop to roughly 20. Sometimes you got to fight for your right. All right, pause, pause it right there. Pause it right there. Okay. So that's what took place today. Uh, read the article from uh, uh, New York Times. Read the one from NBC News also. You heard that was Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General, Civil Rights Division, talking about the lawsuit from the Department of Justice against uh, the state of Georgia for SB 202. Brian Kemp said that they're going to fight this, blah, 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 whatever. We'll see you in court. Um, this article here. Now, this see, this was a coordinated effort. I told you this before, because when we go back and look at the article from Mother Jones, from May 13th, 2021, leaked video, Dark Money Group brags about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country, across the country. And uh, in leaked uh, uh, audio of the video, um, Jessica Anderson, who is the executive director of uh, Heritage Action, which is a sister organization of the Heritage Foundation, uh, in at an April 22nd, 2021 meeting, told the foundation's donors in uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, she said that um, the, the Georgia law had eight key provisions. 
and they crafted the, the Heritage Action helped to craft this Georgia law and these laws and other state legislatures that popped up so quickly. It's a coordinated effort. It's not by accident. And she and she she told Governor Brian Kemp that he has to sign that bill as soon as it passed the state legislature. He signed it within an hour of it passing the state. He didn't read the bill. This is a coordinated attack. This is a coordinated effort. This is not by accident. Now, if 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 the African American vote didn't matter, why why are these groups why are these people spending so much money to suppress the African American vote? This is what we should ask ourselves. All right, uh, let's uh, let's try to squeeze in a little bit of clip four. Uh, it uh, Derek Chauvin sentenced to twenty two point five years for the murder of George Floyd. Let's go to NBC Nightly News. win for my community right now. We still feel empty today. We feel empty. Prosecutors had asked for 30 years in prison. The defense wanted probation and time served, arguing Chauvin was the product of a broken system and had zero criminal history. With Chauvin looking on today, a powerful impact statement from Floyd's yeah. seven-year-old daughter, Gianna. If you could say anything to your daddy right now, what would it be? It will be our mission. I love you. Floyd's nephew and brothers also addressed the court. My family and I have been given a life sentence. We will never be able to get George back. Then Chauvin's mother spoke publicly for the first time. My son's identity has also been reduced to that as of that as a racist. want this court to know that none of these things are true. Uh, all right. Hey, pause, pause it right there. Uh, Ed, pause it right there. Those watching on our Facebook fan page, the African history network, the African history network and our YouTube channel, Michael M hotel. Keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting. We're out of time here on nine ten AM superstation, future radio, future radio. We're going to continue with these topics here on our social media platforms. We'll be back Sunday night. Uh, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. And uh, be sure to sign up for our online course. We have a new one starting up Sunday, July 4th, 2021, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, we'll post a link here and you can register at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Remember, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over, it's not over till we win. Stay tuned for democracy now. We'll talk to you next time. Uh, peace. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, you can support the African History Network. Uh, this is our actual Cash App account, dollar sign, the AHN show, do Cash App. And uh, these are the fake ones that somebody set up. Uh, or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. All right. Now, uh, I want to, uh, let me pull up this clip here. I want to uh, go back to uh, this clip here dealing with Derek Show, and then I'm going to let you hear from an actual attorney as opposed to people on social media talking that don't have a background in law. Uh, former prosecutor Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor who uh, is going to talk about the sentencing. You have people saying this is a slap on the wrist. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, maybe maybe a, a closed-handed slap with brass knuckles on, but no, this is, this is, that, that sentence is not a slap on the wrist. That's, 
that ain't, that ain't a slap on the wrist. Now it's not the max, it's not the maximum. The prosecution wanted um uh the prosecution wanted uh 30 years. Okay, they got 22 and a half years. That ain't a, that's not a slap on the wrist. Okay, let's go back to uh let's go back to this clip here. Police officer Derek Chauvin to 22 and a half years in prison for the murder of George Floyd. I'm not basing my sentence also on public opinion. I'm not basing it on any attempt to send any messages. I'm taking this as a win for my community right now. We still feel empty today. We feel empty. Prosecutors had asked for 30 years in prison. The defense wanted probation and time served arguing Chauvin was the product of a broken system and had zero criminal history. With Chauvin looking on today, a powerful impact statement from Floyd's yeah. seven-year-old daughter, Gianna. If you could say anything to your daddy right now, what would it be? It would be, I miss you and I love you. Floyd's nephew and brothers also addressed the court. My family and I have been given a life sentence. We would never be able to get George back. Then Chauvin's mother spoke publicly for the first time. My son's identity has also been reduced to that as of that as a racist. Want this court to know that none of these things are true. Chauvin himself stood up. I'm not able to give a full formal statement at this time. Um, very briefly, though, I uh, do want to give my condolences to the Floyd family. For some members of Floyd's family, the sentence is not enough. Twenty-two and a half years enough? No, it's not enough. State guidelines recommended a sentence of 10 to 15 years for second-degree murder, but the judge said there were aggravating factors in this case, among them that Chauvin abused his authority as a police officer and that he killed Floyd in front of children. It's unusual for a police officer to be convicted, uh, much less get a sentence like this. And Gabe, we can see passion still high there this evening. The judge also denied the defense motion for a new trial. Uh, yes, Lester, demonstrators are still out tonight, and Chauvin still faces federal charges. The three other officers involved in this case are set to go to trial next year. Okay, so we know next month the other three officers uh go on trial also now um you had some people who thought it was going to be uh less time that the officer got the prosecution wanted the prosecution wanted 30 years um the defense the defense attorney eric nelson wanted probation which I mean, everybody knows that don't make any sense whatsoever, but he's the defense attorney. So he's, he's doing his job. That's what the defense attorney is going to do Ask for the least amount of time, but ask for probation and you brutally killed a man. That doesn't make sense. So here is legal analysis for somebody who one has a law degree, two's practice law, three is a former federal prosecutor and four is a um, law professor. Is Georgetown University, as opposed to social media commentators who have no background in law, have no idea what they're talking about, just saying things that sound good to them, but don't make sense. Um, this is from the readout with Joanne Reed. I was looking for the clip. 
obviously they haven't uploaded the clip yet, so I got it from the podcast of the show. This is a uh, Georgetown law professor, Paul Butler, uh, breaking down the case. Okay. And he thought that, um, he actually thought that because this was, this was Derek Chauvin's first offense that he was convicted for. I'm not saying this is his first offense of police brutality, but this was his first offense that he was actually convicted for. Okay. Um, Attorney Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor Paul Butler, thought that uh, Derek Chauvin would actually get less time than he actually got. Okay, let's go to this clip. Yeah, I, I always like. Always appreciate it. And I feel like I know you now, Felonis. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, brothers. All right. Let me bring in another friend, Paul Butler, professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and a former federal prosecutor. I rarely get to talk to you, Ben in a case where there's actually something like justice uh, in the case of a of a black man or woman killed by police. This is a rare moment. I just want to get how surprised were you? I saw your piece in which you almost predicted what the sentence was going to be. It was actually more than what you thought it was going to be. You thought 18 years. How surprised were you? Uh, the judge did not throw the book at Derek Chauvin, but Joey, he came close. He couldn't go over 30 years without getting reversed on appeal. This is one of the toughest sentences any police officer has received for killing a black person. The judge said he wasn't trying to send a message, but this verdict and sentence will certainly impact police officers. It tells them that if they abuse their badge, like Derek Chauvin, they could face extremely serious consequences. What do you think it means for the other three officers who have to go to trial? I think it means that they should be thinking about making a deal so they don't get the kind of time that George Chauvin got, Derek Chauvin got. They're eligible for that time as well. And in some ways, Joy, their conviction, if it happens, could be even more important because what these officers should have done was enforce the law against their colleague when he was committing murder but instead they just stood and watched. That's often what police officers do. That's that blue wall of silence, that thin blue line. And that has to be dealt with in order for police officers to be held accountable. And what do you think that that short, cryptic, weird comment that Derek Chauvin made at the end, was that about the federal trial? Because it seems to me it would have been better for him to at least seem human, but he just decided not to. Is that about the federal charges, you think? It's very hard to know. I wouldn't mind if we never hear another word from Derek Irma Chauvin. Who, 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 who knows? You know, the reality is, though, that, Joy, this is one case where one police officer is, is prosecuted. When Chauvin completes his incarceration and parole in 2043, this country will be a different place. People of color will be the majority of the population. Let's hope that U.S. cops are not still killing 1,000 people every year yeah. as they have every year since that we have reliable statistics. Whether Chauvin gets 22 years or 40 years won't change that. The focus, as Crump said, has to be on systemic change yeah. like the George Floyd Act. If we don't see this kind of transformation in policing and George Floyd's death, 
will have been in vain. And not just George Floyd. I'm thinking a lot about uh, Gwen Carr today, as, as was mentioned by Philonis Floyd. She lost her son saying the, la the same last words. So she had to feel a, a lot in her heart today. So I really am thinking about her as well as the Floyd family. Uh, thank you very much, Paul Butler, my friend. Appreciate you. Have a great weekend. Okay. So that is... Um, that's from the readout, Joanne Reed. Uh, that's Georgetown law professor, former federal prosecutor, Paul Butler, somebody who actually has a law degree, somebody who, who's actually practiced law, um, given legal analysis. He was thinking that Derek Chauvin, uh, would get 18 years, he ended up getting 22 and a half years. Now, would I'm a, would I, would I have liked for Chauvin to get 30? Sure. Am I disappointed with 22 and a half as opposed to 30? Not really. Because I, one, I know how hard it is to convict police officers, especially white ones, in killing someone African-American. So I'm more uh, focused on the overall structural change and getting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed in the Senate. So the negotiations still go on uh, between Senator Tim Scott on behalf of Republicans and uh, Representative Karen Bass and Senator Cory Booker. Seems like they're moving closer to an, an overall agreement, but it still has to be voted on in the Senate. So we'll see. Now, I, I'm. I'm not focused on an arbitrary deadline to get the bill passed. I'm focused on actually having a meaningful bill. And what a lot of people, many people are not really saying, people understand politics are saying this, but what a lot of people are not saying is you're going to need 10 Republicans to vote for the bill. So whatever bill they come up with, whether it has qualified immunity or doesn't, and doesn't have to have qualified immunity right now, you can come back and get qualified immunity later. There are nine sections. There are nine important sections of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, H.R. 1280. Go to Congress.gov and read the bill. Go to Congress.gov and read the bill. Qualified immunity, as I said before, is not the most important thing. The most important thing is lowering the standard to be able to prosecute and convict uh police officers at the federal level, lowering the standard from willful intent, which goes to state of mind. And it's very, very hard to prove. It's a very high standard to prove. You have to prove that they willfully intended to deprive someone of their civil rights. Not that they actually did deprive someone of their civil rights. Uh, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, based upon the evidence to a jury of 12, you have to prove that the officer willfully, willfully intended to deprive someone of their civil rights. And that's a very high standard, but uh, lowering the standard from um, lowering the standard from willful intent down to negligence means that you can prosecute a lot more officers and ultimately convict a lot more officers. Officers being convicted and going to prison is a bigger deterrent than a civil lawsuit, which is just monetary damages. You're not going to go to prison over that. Actually being convicted, going to prison, being a felon, not being able to fire on firearms when you get out, 
uh, being away from your family, uh, having to deal with prison life. That's a bigger deterrent, especially as a police officer and you going to prison. That's a bigger deterrent than a lawsuit seeking monetary damages. And the police union is going to help you out with some of the help coming up with some of the money. And if they repeal qualified immunity, which they should, that leads back to the uh, civil rights movement. But if they repeal qualified immunity, you know, insurance companies are going to start uh, selling police, uh, mis- uh, police liability insurance. You know, insurance companies are going to start selling police liability insurance. If insurance companies are selling pet pet insurance for your dog or your cat, in case your dog or your cat has to have expensive operations. If insurance companies are selling pet insurance, you think they're not going to sell police liability insurance? So... Um, qualified immunity is what's talked about the most in the media. But if you actually go to congress.gov and read H.R. 1280, that's not the most important thing in there. Uh, There's a fact sheet also on uh, where's that fact sheet? Is that at the uh, house.gov? Yeah, yeah, the one that uh, uh, judiciary.house.gov this one here so you can read this fact sheet also this is see this is what we deal with here all that simple Simon ass nonsense all that he says she says stuff we do like research here um, you can go to judiciary.house.gov house.gov is the official website of the house of representatives You can look at the fact sheet, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021. You can look at the fact sheet, which goes through in details what's in the bill. And it breaks down uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is the first ever vote. Okay, the Justice and Policing Act, one, establish a national standard for uh, establish a national standard for the operation of police uh, departments to mandate data collection on police encounters three reprogram existing funds to invest in transformative community-based policing programs Four, streamline federal law to prosecute excessive force and establish independent prosecutors for police investigations the language of the bill is identical to the version passed in the 116th congress with the support of the entire Democratic caucus and three Republicans. Now, in in the 116th Congress, you may have had uh, three Republicans that voted for it, but it passed uh, the House of Representatives March 3rd, 2021, by a vote of 220 to 212, and no Republicans voted for the bill. Because the one Republican that voted out of Texas, he said he made a mistake. He put out a tweet and said he made a mistake and was going to correct the vote. So... No, uh, actually, 213, 213 Republicans voted against the bill. No, no Republicans voted for this bill. If you go through and look, and we'll post a link here to the fact sheet, but just Google George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021 fact sheet. This is at judiciary.house.gov. House.gov is the official website 
of the house of the U.S. House of Representatives. They have all all types of information there at house.gov. Okay. So if we scroll down and look, uh, it'll work to end uh, racial and religious profiling, and they go through break that down. Saves lives by banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants. They have explanations on that. Limit military equipment on American streets and requires body cameras. Then they have more info on that. Hold police accountable in court. Hold police accountable in court. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act makes it easier to prosecute offending officers, makes it easier to prosecute offending officers by amending the federal criminal statute to prosecute police misconduct. The, the mens rea requirement in uh, federal criminal code 18 USC section 242 will be amended from willfulness, which is willful intent, which goes to state of mind. It will be amended from willfulness to a recklessness or I said negligence, recklessness, recklessness standard. That's lowering the standard needed to prosecute and get a conviction of police officers in federal court. This is criminal prosecution. This is not civil lawsuit seeking monetary damages. This is criminal prosecution to lock your behind up. And you hit with felony charges. That's a bigger deterrent than civil lawsuits. But in the media, what you hear the most talked about that's in the bill is qualified immunity. That's not the most important thing. That's why you have to go read. That's why here we do research and I show you the evidence. Proper documentation ends all conversation. Also, under whole police accountable in court, it enables individuals to recover damages in civil court. Civil court when law enforcement officers violate their constitutional rights by eliminating qualified immunity for law enforcement. Okay, that's dealing with civil court. Now, qualified immunity should be repealed. Should have never been instituted in the first place. But they, that's not the most important thing in this bill. That's why you have to go read these bills and read what's in them. Uh, investigate police misconduct. Okay, read that. Empower our communities to reimagine public safety in an equitable and just way. Change the culture of law enforcement with training to build integrity with trust. They have bullet points for that. Improve transparency by, uh, oh, let me see, I think it's uh, uh, standard based on, requires the creation of law enforcement accreditation standard recommendations based on uh, President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, uh, um, banning racial profiling is in here also. Uh, improve transparency by collecting data on police misconduct and use of force that deals with the nationwide police misconduct registry. That's huge as well. So they can't go from department to department after they screw up at the uh, first department. Stop sexual assault and law enforcement custody. Okay. That's important as well. Uh, this one racial profiling. Uh, okay. Yeah. It deals with racial profiling. Okay. Working in racial and religious profiling, all that. Okay. So read this here. George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021, this fact sheet, this is from judiciary.house.gov. Also go to congress.gov and read H.R. 1280. That's the name, that's the 
this this bill. Um, House of Representatives 1280, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. All right, now, uh, very quickly, okay, let me see. We got clip four, clip, uh, da, 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 da. we did that. And uh, there was a clip I wanted to go to also from uh, the readout with Joanne Reed. I want to go back to that. She interviewed Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter about the lawsuit today. I want to go to that clip also just a second. But let me show you this article here. This is the one I was looking for from history.com. This deals with the 15th Amendment and voting rights, which ties into our lead story dealing with the Department of Justice suing uh, the state of Georgia over SB 202. And we talked about Shelby County versus Holder. Okay. All this is connected. We talked about Shelby, Shelby County versus Holder. Um, this article here, when did, uh, African-Americans actually get the right to vote? When did African, African-Americans actually get the right to vote? And we've talked about this story before. Uh, and in February, 2020, the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment. 15th Amendment was adopted um, February 3rd, 1870. I did a presentation in 2020 dealing with, does an amendment give you the right to vote? Because nowhere in the US Constitution does it explicitly give anyone the right to vote, but the 15th Amendment protects the right to vote. And then um, we know the 19th Amendment uh, to the US Constitution of uh, 1920, the 19th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote to women, that language is based upon the 15th Amendment, okay? But very quickly, if we look at this article, uh, the 15th Amendment was supposed to guarantee black men the right to vote, but exercising that right became another challenge. Uh, It goes through, okay, okay, talks about the presidential reconstruction and black codes, and they deal with obstacles in voting. 1867 political cartoons. So this is during, this is the early part of Reconstruction. 1867 political par- cartoon depicting an African-American man uh, casting his ballot during uh, the Georgetown elections as Andrew Johnson and others look on angrily. Okay. President Andrew Johnson. Uh, let's see here. 1865-1866 is many Southern state legislatures enacted restrictive laws known as black codes, which strictly govern black citizens' behaviors and denied them suffrage and other uh, rights. Now, the Union troops are going to enforce the rights of African-Americans to a certain extent, but all that's going to be reversed after uh, Reconstruction ends in 1877. Radical Republicans in Congress were outraged, arguing that uh, the black codes went a long way toward reestablishing slavery in all but name. Early in 1866, Congress passed the Civil Rights Bill. That's the Civil Rights Bill or Civil Rights Act of 1866. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, because the, the Civil Rights Act of 1865 was vetoed. It was defeated. The Civil Rights Bill of 1866 was aimed to build on the 13th Amendment and give African-Americans the right of citizens. When President Andrew Johnson vetoed the bill on the basis 
of opposing federal action. Now, now Andrew Johnson became the president after Lincoln was shot April 14th, 1865, when um, President Andrew Johnson vetoed the bill on the basis of opposing federal action on behalf of formerly enslaved people. Congress overrode his veto, marking the first time in the nation's history that major legislation became law over a presidential veto. All right, now, they, they talk about the 14th and 15th Amendments as well, 1868 and 1870. Over the next decade, so with passage of a new Reconstruction Act, Again, over President Johnson's veto, because Johnson was sympathetic to the Confederacy. All right. And Johnson is going to take back the majority of the land from special field order number 15, also known as 40 acres and the mule, and give that land back to the former uh, plantation owners, the slave owners, former slave owners. In March 1867, the era of radical or congressional reconstruction began, okay, with the passage of a new Reconstruction Act. Uh, in March 1867, the era of radical or congressional reconstruction began over the next decade. African-Americans voted uh, in huge numbers across the South, electing a total of 22 African-American men um, to serve in the U.S. Congress and two in the Senate and helping to elect President Johnson's Republican successor, Ulysses S. Grant, in 1860. 1868. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about what President Ulysses S. Grant did in 1871 when he declared martial law in nine counties in South Carolina using the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which was the third of what are known as the Force Acts, the Force Acts during Reconstruction. All this deals with history. This deals with policies, politics. Politics is the legal distribution of wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. The 14th Amendment, approved by Congress in 1866 and ratified in 1868, granted citizenship to all persons, quote, born or naturalized in the United States, end quote, including former slaves, and guaranteed equal protection of the laws to all citizens. In 1870, Congress passed the last of the three so-called Reconstruction Acts, the 15th Amendment, which stated that voting rights could not be, quote, denied or abridged uh, by the uh, United States or by any state on account of race, color or previous condition of servitude. Now, uh, read the rest of this. Stuff. I don't have time to go through all this reconstruction to the civil rights era. OK, all this all this is connected. All this is connected. OK, reconstruction to the uh, civil rights era. Now. Uh, let's see. OK, 15th Amendment barred voting rights discrimination on the basis of race. But what while the 15th Amendment barred uh, voting rights discrimination on the basis of race. It left open. Hold on. OK, it left the door open for states to determine the specific qualifications for suffrage or the specific qualifications to be able to vote. All right. So while the, the 15th Amendment barred voting rights discrimination. On the basis of race. Saying you can't discriminate against people on the basis of race, you can't discriminate against people because they're African-American. It left open the door for states to determine the specific qualifications to be able to vote. 
okay? Southern state legislatures used such qualifications, including literacy tests and poll taxes as, as voted on in uh, the, at the Mississippi State uh, Convention in 1890 when they adopted the Mississippi State Constitution, which made legal literacy tests and poll taxes. And then other southern states are going to start putting these types of laws into their state constitutions and adopting them also. So the 15th Amendment said you can't keep people from voting because of race, but it left the door open for states to determine what were the qualifications to be able to vote outside of race. It allowed them to put these other obstacles in the way of you being able to vote as opposed to saying you can't vote because you're black or African-American. Now, Southern state legislatures used such qualifications, including literacy tests, poll taxes, and other discriminatory practices to disenfranchise a majority of African-American voters in the decades following Reconstruction. As a result, white-dominated state legislatures consolidated control and effectively reestablished the black codes in the form of so-called Jim Crow laws, a system of segregation that will remain in place for nearly a century. In the 1950s and 60s, securing voting rights for African-Americans in the South became a central focus of the civil rights movement. While the sweeping Civil Rights Act of 1964 finally banned segregation in schools and other public places, it did little to remedy the problem of discrimination in voting rights. The brutal attacks by state and local law enforcement on hundreds of peaceful protesters led Dr. King and other civil rights activists like Amelia Boynton and Septa McClark, okay, um, uh, in, in Selma, Alabama, in March 1965, uh, they drew unprecedented attention to the movement for voting rights. John Lewis, Hosea Williams, okay, in, in 1965, in the, uh, in the march from Selma to Montgomery. Montgomery is the capital of Alabama. Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965. Now, later that year, Jimmy Lee Jackson, who lost his life a few weeks before that, uh, shot and killed by Alabama State Trooper. Later that year, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which banned, which banned literacy tests and other methods used to disenfranchise African-Americans that was put into law at the state level in their state constitutions, like the Mississippi State Constitution of 1890. That's why you needed the Civil Rights Act of 65 to deal with what was put in the law in the states decades ago. In the 1966, in 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the Harper versus Virginia Board of Elections that poll taxes, which the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution had eliminated for federal elections in 1964, were unconstitutional for state and local elections as well. Continued challenges to black voting rights, continued challenges to black voting rights. OK, now. Um, OK, 1960, 1980, uh, uh, 2000, this is what we talked about. OK. About a half hour ago. In 2012, 
turnout of African-American voters, or maybe an hour ago, in 2012, turnout of African-American voters exceeded that of white voters for the first time in history. See, this is the year before Shelby County versus Holder U.S. Supreme Court case. When African-Americans turned out 66.6% of African-American voters who were registered to vote in the, in the 2012 presidential election, when 66.6% of, of eligible African-American voters voted in the 2012 presidential election, the percentage of African-Americans who were registered to vote, who actually voted, exceeded the percentage of white voters who registered to vote, who actually voted. This scared the hell out of white Republicans. This scared the hell out of white Republicans. And African-Americans elected President Obama to a second term. So what was the backlash? Remember, I said white people today generally don't ride in the street. They ride where? In the ballot, at the ballot box and in court. So what did they do? They ride it in court with the U.S. Supreme Court case of it started at the lower courts, then went to the U.S. Supreme Court. 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. Where's Shelby County? Alabama. Wasn't Alabama where you had the Selma to Montgomery March? Wasn't Alabama where you had Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, where John Lewis was almost killed? Wasn't that Alabama? Yes. Wasn't Alabama where George Wallace was governor? They rioted in the courts, not the streets. I know, I know uh, uh, John Hope uh, Bryant likes to say uh, communities with 700 credit scores uh, or higher don't riot. No, they riot at the ballot box. They riot in the courts, not in the streets. They attack you differently. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, which is what Attorney General Merrick Garland talked about today when he talked about Shelby County versus Holder. This is what Kristen Clark, Assistant uh, Attorney General in the Department of Civil Rights. This is what she talked about today. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Ruling in a 5-4 ruling in Shelby County versus Holder that it was unconstitutional to require states with a history of voting or voter discrimination to seek federal approval before changing their election laws. Because uh, because this, uh, uh, this that was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, because of Section 5, what it states basically is that states that have a history of putting obstacles in the way of African-Americans voting, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, if they want to make any changes, if they want to make any changes to locations or polling places, how many Sundays you can have polls to the soul, uh, souls to the poll voting where, you know, people go vote after church and a lot of African-Americans vote after church. If they want to make changes to the times of polling locations and how many weeks you or how many days you have early voting, how many drop boxes you have. If they want to make any changes, they have to get approval from a federal judge. That was in the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Shelby County versus Holder weakened that 
it struck down Section 5, it gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Within 24 hours of that U.S. Supreme Court case, these, these state legislatures started passing these new voter restriction laws, implementing voting ID laws and things like this. Therefore, in the 2016 presidential election, there were 868 fewer polling places. There were 868. See, we don't understand how all this is connected. You're looking for people to ride in the street. They ride, at, they ride in the courts and they ride in the state legislatures. Ari Berman, who now writes for Mother Jones, but in 2016, he was writing for uh, thenation.com. Um, he wrote a series of articles leading up to the um, presidential election, 2016 presidential election. And he, one of the ones he wrote was this one right here. And I deal with this, you know, I have a whole lecture dealing with, um, I did it back in 2017. Um, uh it was called uh, African-American resistance in the era of Donald Trump, voter suppression, reparations and how elections have consequences. OK. This one right here. There are eight hundred and sixty eight fewer polling places to vote in 2016 because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. You think elections don't have consequences? That means you don't read. That means you don't understand law. There are eight hundred and sixty eight fewer polling places in the 2016 presidential election. Because Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was gutted in, in Shelby County versus Holder, 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case, that was a backlash to the 2012 presidential election. White people rioted in the courts. They rioted in the state legislatures. And many of us don't understand that, so we don't see it coming and don't know how to defend against it. So re re read this full article here. I don't, I don't have time to get this. We're way over time. This is from November 4th, 2016. This was four days before the presidential election because the presidential election in 2016 was November 8th. Now, there are about 1,700 fewer polling places. You think elections don't have consequences? So let's go back to this quickly. Now, all this ties to history and law. All right. This is the article, again, from history.com. History.com is the official website of the History Channel. OK, so the 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case, Shelby County versus Holder. In the wake of the court's decision, in the wake of the court's decision, a number of states passed new restrictions on voting, including limiting early voting and requiring voters to show photo ID. They started passing laws within 24 hours of this U.S. Supreme Court case. Supporters argue such measures are designed to prevent voter fraud, while critics say they, like poll taxes and literacy tests, before them, disproportionately affect poor, elderly, African-American, and Latino voters. Um, okay, so read the rest of this article here. Read this full article. When did African-Americans African actually get the right to vote? This is from History.com, April 15, 2021, by Sarah Pruitt, okay? It's a deep, deep article. All this deals with history and law. They, they, they intersect. Okay, they intersect. Now, so we got that. Then we look at this piece from Mother Jones from Ari Berman. Once again, 
Uh, this is from uh, today. Uh, this is from uh, June 25th. It deals with Shelby County versus Holder. Read this article. Don't have time to get deep into it. Eight years ago, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Widespread voter suppression resulted. White people rioted in the courts. 26 states have since passed restricting voting laws because white people rioted at the state legislature level. 26 states have since passed restrictive voting laws, including 10 that previously needed federal approval. This is by Ari Berman, okay, for Mother Jones, June 25th, 2021. On June 25th, 2013, Chief Justice John Roberts gutted a key section of the Voting Rights Act, ruling that states with a long history of voter discrimination, long history, history, once again, all this ties into history, with a long history of voter dis voting discrimination no longer needed to get federal approval for changes to their election procedures. Quote, things have changed dramatically since the law's enactment in 1965, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in Shelby County versus Holder, implying that there was no reason to think those states would pass discriminatory voting restrictions in the future. He lied. That's not true. They started doing that within 24 hours of the court ruling. But since that decision with which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg compared to, quote, throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are, you are not getting wet, end quote, new voter suppression laws have proliferated across the country. Twenty six states have enacted new restrictions on voting. Since the Shelby County versus Holder ruling of 2013, according to an analysis by Mother Jones on the eighth anniversary of the decision, based on data, data provided by the Brennan Center for Justice and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, roughly 40 percent of these states previously had to clear their voting changes with the federal government. Roughly 40% of these states making changes had to get federal approval from a federal judge before they can make changes, meaning that new restrictions on voting enacted by such states as Arizona, Georgia, and Texas likely would have been blocked if not for the Shelby County versus Holder 2013 Supreme Court decision because white people rioted in the courts. And we don't understand this and didn't see this attack coming. Many of us. These include these include measures like strict voter ID laws, cuts to cuts to early voting, new barriers to voter registration and voting by mail, polling place closures, polling place closures. And voter roll purges, voter roll purges, like like the ones just happened in Georgia, it's like a hundred thousand people purged from the voter rolls. Such laws have steadily increased since the Shelby County versus Holder 2013 U.S. Supreme Court decision, and have dramatically accelerated this year, 2021, following Benedict Donald, the trader in chief's attempt to overturn the 2020 election, with 17 states enacting 28 new voting restrictions this year alone, 17 states 
enacting 28 new voter restrictions alone, according to the, the Brennan Center for Justice. Read the rest of this article here from MotherJones.com, written by Ari Berman. Eight years ago, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Widespread voter suppression resulted. So then if we look very quickly here, um, there was one from uh, Mother Jones. This one right here. This is one I'm looking for. September 10th, 2019. This piece right here. More than 1,600 polling places have closed since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. There were 868 fewer polling places in the, in the 2016 presidential election. There were 868 fewer polling places, okay? This article is from September 10th, 2019. September 2019, there are more than 1,600 fewer polling places. You think this is all a coincidence? That, that's before COVID. That's 2019. That's before COVID. So then they talk about Shelby County versus Holder. And, and, and now the, uh, uh, the majority of these polling places that are being closed are being closed in communities that have a high, high African-American or Hispanic population. So read this article also. All right, now, lastly, uh, let me see. Let me squeeze in this. Uh, I, I want to get to this clip here from, uh, where are we on time? Um, this is from the readout with Joanne Reed. We're probably, we're, we're going to deal with this some more Sunday. And we'll talk about Juneteenth. I'm talking about my trip from Juneteenth. We'll share an excerpt of the uh, one of my presentations. I did two presentations in Atlanta at the Juneteenth Festival. We'll share some of that on our, on our Sunday show because we actually have two hours on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF on our Sunday show. Uh, I want to squeeze a little bit of this piece in here. This is from, where's the one from? Uh, um, this is from the readout. She, uh, she had uh, Latasha Brown on from Black Voters Matter. Let me try to find this clip here. I have so many clips. And I have to see where this is here so I can cue this up. Just a second here. Let me try to cue this up quickly. Uh, what will we Okay, just a second. All right. Let me back this up here. All right. So uh, she talks about the uh, lawsuit filed today by the Department of Justice, and she speaks with Latasha Brown and also a member of the Georgia State Legislature. 
We believe the civil rights of Americans have been violated. We will not hesitate to act. Days after Senate Republicans blocked even debating federal voting rights legislation, the For the People Act, the Biden Justice Department took its first action on voting rights, suing Georgia over its voter suppression law, which Attorney General Merrick Garland says violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The head of the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark, who will oversee the lawsuit, spelled out how Georgia's law was explicitly enacted to target black voters. After a, a historic election that saw record voter turnout across the state, particularly for absentee voting, which black voters are now more likely to use than white voters, our complaint challenges several provisions of SB 202 on the grounds that they were adopted with the intent to deny or abridge black citizens equal access to the political process. It's now one of eight lawsuits challenging various parts of the Georgia law. It comes on the eighth anniversary of the Supreme Court's Shelby versus Holter decision gutting core provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Specifically, sections requiring states with a history of discriminatory voting laws, like Georgia, to receive federal preclearance on changes to their procedures. Today, Clark highlighted the most egregious provisions in that law, um, and uh, that including giving, giving out food and water to people who are standing in line to vote. Historically, minority voters in Georgia have been disproportionately more likely to wait in long lines to vote in person on Election Day. As we allege in our complaint, this needless ban was passed with unlawful discriminatory intent. I'm joined now by Congresswoman Nakima Williams of Georgia and Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, whose Freedom Ride for Voting Rights bus tour concludes tomorrow with a major rally in Washington, D.C., coinciding with the 60-year anniversary of the original Freedom Rides. Thank you both for being here. And uh, Representative Williams, I want to first get your reaction to this lawsuit. I mean, I was kind of like you, Joy. Welcome to the party. But we all have our role to play. I'm going to continue my fight here in Congress to make sure that we get the best bill possible passed in the For the People Act. And I'm supporting my sisters on the ground in the movement like Latasha, because we got to have that outside presence. We have to have the grassroots going. And I've always said, we'll see you in Congress or the courts. And in the South, that's the way we know we have to defeat Jim Crow. And that's exactly what this is. So the Department of Justice, it is their job to represent the American people and to make sure that our civil rights are protected. Are you concerned that if, let's say that this lawsuit happens, that there won't be a stay of the law in, in effect uh, before the elections? Because it does feel like uh, Republicans in Georgia from Brian Kemp on down are trying to ensure themselves reelection and to ensure that they can, for instance, uh, get hold of Raphael Warnock's Senate seat. Are you worried that this law will still be in court and not stayed and can still be used to stop people from voting in Georgia ahead of 2022? Well, I think that's exactly why we are not giving up on passing the For the People Act and getting a legislation passed so that we can get a bill to President Biden's desk and signed into law in advance of the elections. Yeah. And uh, Latasha, I know that you are on the road with some Freedom Riders, some original Freedom Riders with you. I want to get your reaction to the fact that the courts are now engaged, particularly uh, having uh, Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark on the job in terms of the court cases. And also, in addition, uh, the Justice Department is now to investigate, prosecute and, uh, and prosecute um, threats against election workers. And the two of them will be leading that effort, Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark. You're reaction to that? You know, I am 
extremely hopeful. I am really glad that this is happening. You know, I needed that this week. Matter of fact, as I am sitting out in front of the Supreme Court right now, as we speak, I'm steps away from the Supreme Court because we have an action at the Supreme Court this evening. We have a press conference and literally around to mark the eighth anniversary of the Shelby versus Holder decision, which essentially opened up the floodgates of what we're experiencing right now. Those of us, there are many of us that actually said we drove to D.C., we sat in the Supreme Court during the arguments and we kept saying that this would happen, that we would start seeing an attack on black voters, that if you broke, if you pulled out the preclearance clause, we would see what is actually essentially happening. And what's ironic is on Friday when we left at Georgia, you know, the Secretary of State, the Republican Secretary of State, announced that he's purging 100,000 voters from the voting rolls. We know who that's targeted at. So I think this is a very strong, positive step forward from the DOJ. Um, is no longer the, the personal uh, law office of the president. It seems like it's now in a position that is going to seek for having electoral justice for the people. So, I'm, And to have two women of color who are also experienced veteran civil rights attorneys, I feel very, very, um, I'm very confident that the, that the, the state will bring its resources. You know, when, when it happened, I, we filed a lawsuit within minutes um, of the bill being signed, but now to have the full weight of the federal government with the resources to bring to bear, I'm extremely hopeful and excited about this opportunity. Now let me show some photos of just for, for those who are not aware of the, or not following you on social media, which they should be. Uh, our friend Mark Thompson, Reverend Mark Thompson, tweeted a photo uh, of yourself, uh, Latasha, along with Cliff Albright, uh, who's the co-founder of Black Borders Matter. There you all are, um, and they're also an event in Richmond, Virginia, uh, on the Freedom Ride for Voting in that tour in Charleston, West Virginia. So I just want people to see what you're doing out there. But I do want to ask uh, Representative Williams, the other piece of this is the removal of black uh, and Democratic members of elections commissions, which seems really concerning. Is, is there some hope that those positions will be restored? Because this law isn't specifically about that. I mean, this uh, lawsuit isn't specifically about that. So, Joy, that that is one of the things that the original version of H.R. 1 did not address, but we're working on that as well. I just introduced a bill this week that would prevent that from happening in any state in this country. And you can only remove election officials for cause. So we are working on that as the Republicans get creative and finding more and more ways to prevent us from voting. We have to get creative and well and make as well and make sure that we are doing things to protect the vote. So. It's up to us to do our work. This is our civil rights movement. Yeah. So what are we going to do with it? And Latasha, I'm going to give you the, the, the last word on this. Can you just spell out for anyone who doubts uh, that we need comprehensive federal legislation? You're on the ground uh, mobilizing black voters, registering black voters. What does it mean in practice to have these kinds of laws in place when you're trying to uh, allow people to exercise their right to vote? You know, it's 60 years ago that Freedom Riders actually were um, black and white folks were coming together and they were testing the case around segregation. And because they worked together, they won. As we've been traveling, we've been traveling going on nine days, eight days to not only urban areas, but rural areas. And we're hearing story after story of people saying it's becoming more difficult. They're actually talking about how this affects them, how what happened in Georgia actually impacts them in Alabama states, one of the states that doesn't even have no excuse absentee ballot voting, that there is a need for us to pass 
or the People Act as it's written and the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act so that we set a national federal standard so that people have equal and access, fair access to the ballot, whether they're in Idaho or Alabama or Mississippi. And we need the voter the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act because we need the teeth back into the voter um, uh, of the voter of uh, Voting Rights Act as well. And so we need both. We need the court system. This is an issue about democracy, not partisanship. And so that's why we're doing the work that we're doing on the Freedom Ride. And we hope people come and join us on the mall tomorrow between 12 and 4. So come out and ride out with us. Well, I'm heading I'm heading back uh, to the D.C. area. So I'm going to try to catch y'all before you guys leave. I'm gonna, so hopefully I can make it in time. Uh, thank you very much for being here, both Congresswoman Nakima Williams and Latoya. Tasha Brown. Hope to see you tomorrow. All right, still ahead. Okay. Hey, actually, you know, yeah. Um, okay, Kim uh, Nakima Williams was in the Georgia State Legislature, but she is in the House of Representatives now. I forgot about that. Yeah, she's in the House of Representatives now. She won, uh, if I remember correctly, it was John Lewis's seat in Georgia. Um, she won his seat. Okay, so yes, she was in the Georgia State Legislature, but she is now in the House of Representatives. Uh, this tweet here from Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. I follow her on Twitter. Latasha, it's okay for you to follow me back. Um, this is from June 25th, 2021. Today we went to the Supreme Court. Tomorrow we are headed to Congress and the White House to, vo to voice our concerns and demands. And uh, this one here, uh, they're, they're, okay, they're at the Supreme Court. We're here at the Supreme Court for a press conference to discuss voting rights and the announcement of the DOJ suing the state of Georgia over new voter restrictions. Hashtag Black Voters Matter. All right, check that out. Lastly, we're going to continue this discussion. Uh, we'll do some more of this on Sunday show. Um, uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, in just a minute here about uh, 1871, the Ku Klux Klan after 1871. And we'll talk about that some more on our Sunday show because on Sunday we're on for two hours, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you like this type of information, you'll love the online course that I teach. Um, it's a 10-week online course, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. Uh, we have a new uh, section starting up of the course on Sunday July 4th, the 4th of July, Sunday, July 4th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be four consecutive Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. And we deal with thousands of years of history and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And we go through time. We deal with uh, tens of thousands of years of history. Uh, we deal with the African presence in the Americas dating back at least 56,000 years ago and in South America and at least 51,700 years ago um, in the land that we call the United States of America. Uh, so you can, we, we posted the link here. This is a 10-week um, online course. Now I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, guest speakers. We do the class live. Uh, on Sundays, all the sessions are recorded. All the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch it over and over again. You can watch from around the world. I'm wearing my Juneteenth t-shirt, by the way, from the, uh, ninth annual Juneteenth, uh, parade and music festival. Okay. 2021 in Atlanta, but you can, uh, watch, you can watch it live. And then also all the sessions are recorded. 
So you go back and watch it over and over again. You still have access to the course even after the course is over with. You can watch from around the world. You can use this with your children also. A lot of people are always looking for uh, historical content for their children. I would say the content is PG-13. I would say it's PG-13. It's not overly graphic. I don't do a lot of cursing and things like that in it. Um, so we posted the link here. It's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, on the homepage of our website, uh, scroll down and you'll see the uh, information for the, um, you'll see the information for the uh, course. And let me get back over to that. Where is that? Okay. Yeah. Scroll down. You'll see the information for the course and then uh, click on register here. And yep, you see the information for the course and the flyer. Click on register here. Takes you to the next page. And it says 20 hour online course, July 2, 2021. Click on enroll. As soon as you enroll, you can start watching the content. Uh, so also, what we're going to do is enroll you in the uh, we, we have a Saturday session that uh, we have like three more classes of. We're also going to enroll you in that Saturday session that meets 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, you can join us in that Saturday class as well. And you'll be able to go back and watch classes one through seven of the Saturday class. Um, Saturday, June 12th, Dr. David M. Hotel spoke to our class, author of the book. Uh, the first Americans were Africans documented evidence, Dr. David M. Hotep. So you can watch uh, that class with him and archaeologist Nubia Wartford spoke to our class a couple months ago. And, and she goes to the Sudan and does archaeological dig. So we talked about the origins of ancient Kush and African queens of antiquity. So as soon as you register, you can watch that content as well. And you can join us Sunday, July 4th for the Sunday class. Sunday, July 4th, 2021 for the Sunday class. All right. Uh, lastly, I want to get to um, dealing with the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. So a couple of uh, sources on this. It was a lot, it was a lot of information on this, but uh, history. Um, what is that? House.gov. House.gov. Uh, has an article, history.house.gov, has an article dealing with um, the uh, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And history.house.gov is um, the history section of the House of Representatives, okay? They have a piece on this, and also senate.gov as well has a piece on this also. If you flip over to this here, this is at history.house.gov. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, April 20th, 1871. Um, President Grant signs this bill into law. Okay, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And he's going to, in October of, uh, let's see, after both chambers, after both chambers of Congress, agreed to the conference report on April 20th, 1871. President Ulysses S. Grant signed the bill into law later that day. Nearly six months later in October, 1871, President Grant used these powers in several 
South Carolina counties demonstrating the willingness of the Republican-led federal government to take decisive action to protect the civil and political rights of the freed people during Reconstruction. Okay, so you can read this here. This is at history.house.gov dealing with the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Now, if we look at this piece here from EJI.org, um, EJI Equal Justice Initiative, Equal Justice Initiative. October 17th, 1781, um, violence by the KKK in South Carolina forces President Grant to declare martial law, forces President Grant to uh, declare martial law. And he's using the uh, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 to do this. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to strike down a portion of the uh Ku Klux Klan Act in a Supreme Court case in um, 1883. But let's look at this here quickly. And we'll talk some more about this. We'll try to squeeze this in Sunday. Um, I said to talk about the Klan founded December 24, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee. KKK violence was so intense in South Carolina after the Civil War. Keep in mind, South Carolina is where the Civil War started, April 12, 1861. South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union, December 20, 1860. KKK violence was so intense in South Carolina after the Civil War that the United States Attorney General Amos Ackerman, okay, United States Attorney General Amos Ackerman and Army Major Lewis Merrill traveled to South Carolina to investigate. In York County alone, in York County alone in South Carolina, they found evidence of 11 murders and more than 600 whippings and other assaults. And the Klan, the Klan were not just attacking African-Americans, but they were attacking also white Republicans as well, as well. Now, when local grand juries failed to take action, uh, Attorney General uh, Amos Ackerman per urged Attorney General Amos Ackerman urged President Ulysses S. Grant to intervene, describing the counties as, quote, under the domination of systemic and organized depravity, end quote, under the domination of systemic and organized depravity. Attorney General uh, uh, Merrill said the um, I'm sorry, um, uh, Army Major Lewis Merrill said the situation was a, quote, carnival of crime not paralleled in the history of any civilized community, a carnival of crime not paralleled in the history of any civilized community. Now, in April 1871, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, which made it a federal crime to deprive American citizens of their civil rights through racial terrorism. It made it a crime to deprive American citizens of their civil rights through racial terrorism or what we may call domestic terrorism. OK, based upon race. Now, on October 12th, um, 1871. Uh, on October 12, 1871. Um, President uh, Ulysses S. Grant declared martial law and suspended the writ of habeas corpus, meaning having to go to court, okay? Suspended the writ of habeas corpus in, this, in the same nine counties in South Carolina. 
Uh, once he did so, federal forces were allowed to arrest and imprison KKK members and instigators of racial terrorism without bringing them before a judge or into court. All right. They, they suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Now, many affluent uh, Ku Klux Klan members fled the jurisdiction to avoid arrest. But by December 1871, approximately 600 Klansmen were in jail. More than 200 arrestees were indicted. 53 pleaded guilty and five were convicted at trial. 53 pleaded guilty. Five were convicted at trial. Approximately 600 Klansmen were in jail. More than 200 arrestees were indicted. So some are going to flee uh, these counties. Klan terrorism in South Carolina decreased significantly after the arrest and trials, but racial violence targeting African-Americans continued throughout the South for decades. So when I heard the news of the uh, lawsuit against the uh, against Georgia by the Department of Justice today, this made me think of October 17th, 1871, when President Ulysses S. Grant declared martial law against South Carolina because of the terrorism against uh, African-Americans by the Klan. And the and what's taking place in Georgia now is terrorism from the Republican dominated state legislature in South Carolina and the Republican governor targeting African-Americans as well. All right. If you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. This helps us uh, to keep broadcasting six days a week. Keep doing the research. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of research. Just pull together this content for today's show. Keep doing the research. Stay on the air. Keep broadcasting. Pay some of the bills, et cetera. Um, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, then also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Okay. And our actual Cash App account, our tag is dollar sign the AHN show, S H O W. And it shows my name there, it says Michael, and it shows my picture there as well. These other ones here are uh, fake uh, Cash App accounts. I already reported them uh, to Cash App. Okay. All right. We'll be back uh, Sunday. Uh, we're on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to register for uh, the ten, uh, the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. And uh, you can also watch uh, the African History Network show now on uh, Black on Purpose TV, Black on Purpose TV. Uh, they have all types of positive content. Uh, African-American content at blackonpurposetv.com, blackonpurposetv.com. Okay. And uh, if you want to advertise with the African History Network, email us at um, show at africanhistorynetwork.com, show at africanhistorynetwork.com. On Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black On Purpose Television Network. All black all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be.
black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows, Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. All right. So we have to get out of here. Remember, right now, correct wrong behaviors. Not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you Sunday. Peace.